We uh, are going to continue on in our Bible Institute time. We're working through the Gospel of Luke right now. Most of you know we have a Bible Institute. We have 686 students as of this morning uh, all over the world, which is pretty cool. So um, they keep joining every week. We, that total goes up. Um, you can join our Bible Institute anytime. It's free. You can earn an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree. And there's 110 courses available. They're all available online. We sort of pick through some courses here and go through them kind of slowly. Uh, so if you really wanted a degree, this isn't the way to do it, not at this pace. But uh, it would certainly add a little over time. And hopefully you'll get some general knowledge, so that's good. This is a New Testament survey, which means we're taking our, our time to kind of work through the New Testament together over the next season. And then uh, we'll see where we are from there. Uh, as I said, we're working through the Gospel of Luke right now. We're up to Luke chapter 11, and we're going to hit a few topics as we go. So uh, in Luke chapter 11, what uh, we have there is um, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. It's uh, basically what we know as the model prayer. Let me read you the first 13 verses. Most of you know the Matthew version, but it's pretty similar. In Luke, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord... Teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend. And he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. Because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asked for a fish, would give him a snake instead? Or if he asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So that's a, a, a great passage on prayer for lots of reasons. One, it talks about being persistent in prayer, uh, that we're to continually go and, and um, pray, and that it's so it's to be a part of our life. Uh, on a, uh, you know, a, a very normal sort of routine, regular basis. Um, I like to think that, you know, we should start every day with a time of prayer and reading the Word, but, but then we should get back to prayer and that prayer should become part of our life. That, um, you know, we talk all the time about, you know, yielding our lives to the Holy Spirit and really leaning in and looking for direction. And that all of that is sort of a part of and a type of prayer where, as things are happening through the day, connecting and seeing, you know, the Lord's direction and wisdom on, on that and getting insight on what you should do and what you shouldn't do, that that's all part of that type of connection. And Jesus also, see, his disciples, there was something about the way that Jesus prayed that people knew it was, it was meaningful. It wasn't just something by rote or something for others to see. Jesus, in, throughout the Gospel of Luke, withdraws to solitary places, and he would often spend all night praying and connecting. And his disciples saw that, and they, they knew who Jesus, you know, was and what he was doing, and they said, can you teach us to pray like that? 
And so he gives them those verses, and we know the Matthew account. Most of you know Matthew 6, 9, 13, when we do the Lord's Prayer. That's what most of you would just automatically know. Uh, and, and the one you go with, the one in Luke is similar. Your Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us our daily bread. Forgive our sins. We forgive those who've sinned against us. And lead us not to temptation. It's similar, but it's really a model uh, so that, that when we go to pray, um, it's not just that we say those words by rote, but we use them as sort of a guide to prayer, if you would. Uh, so, so when we start, Our Father who art in heaven, that's kind of where we start, and we, we stop there and we, we pray there, right there. Lord, you know, you're God, and, and I'm not, and, and I worship you, and I honor you, and we sort of take some time to worship and to praise and to, 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 to get settled into his presence. And, uh, you know, Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done. It's, uh, it's a time when we say, Lord, I don't, I don't want to go through the day doing my will. I want your will. Uh, and, and so I want you to be on the throne of my heart. I, I don't, I don't want to be the one that's trying to take that in the process. Um, give us today our daily bread is a great time to sort of stop and, and pray about uh, uh, for the needs of people that you know and for your own needs and taking some time to do that and, and whatever those might be. Forgive us our sins. Uh, is, you know, we take uh, an account there of, uh, you know, the mess in our own lives and, and we ask God uh, there, you know, to forgive us. I, I think that short accounts are very important in the process. And so regularly, you know, I like to sort of, I got stuff to deal with all the time. I don't know about you, but, but uh, at least daily, if not throughout the day, there's stuff that needs to happen. So, so we do that all the time as we forgive those who sin against us, you know, and, and we, we try and not let that stuff build up in any way. Lead us not to temptation, it says in Luke, uh, but deliver us from the evil one is where Matthew would continue. I, I think there it's important for us to, to, to say, Lord, will you give me wisdom, give me direction. I often use that opportunity to pray on the armor of God, which we've talked about here a lot. Don't, don't leave home without it. <laughs> I, I don't know how else to say it other than that. You should, you should be praying on the armor of God, and, and it's just something that you should be doing as you start your days and maybe even throughout the days. And so, you know, we talked, we've talked about the armor, but it's, you know, I, you, you gird your loins with truth. You remember, Lord, I, Lord, I just want to have truth today. And would you surround me in the, the, your righteousness, God, the breastplate of righteousness. I don't want to walk in self-righteousness. And I shod my feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Lord, I want to walk in your way and be ready to share where I can. I'm going to take up the shield of faith that extinguishes all the fiery darts of the enemy. I'm going to put on that helmet of salvation, guard my mind and my thoughts, God, and take that sword of the spirit, which is the word. And, and that, that's the armor that we have to go through the day and to deal with the, the spiritual battles that come our way. And we are all involved in a spiritual battle, every one of them. When you become a believer, the battle's on. You were in it before. You may not know it, but you're in it now, and you're in it, and we have a very real enemy. But we have everything we need to experience full and abundant now and forever life, and God has made sure of that for us in Christ. So uh, we just need to take hold of that and in... Uh, this part of our lives in yielding in prayer and, and in, you know, staying connected is vital to us to experience the kind of life that he has for us. So that's how he begins to teach his disciples to pray. And then the, the rest of that passage is about God is good and he wants you to be blessed. And, and we go to him with that notion. Does that mean that you, you get everything that you ask for in prayer? Uh-uh. Because God is good. 
And he knows better than you do about a lot of things. And, and uh, you know, so God always answers prayer. I believe that. But sometimes he answers no. And he does it for the right reason. Uh, and I always equate that with, with me, when you had children. And he, he uses kids here too. When your kids would ask you for something that you knew wouldn't be good for them, you would tell them no. And, and that, that was necessary. It needed to happen. It wasn't because hopefully you weren't trying to be mean to them. <laughs> No, I could give you that, but I'm not going to, just because. Uh, how do you like that? <laughs> but, but that's not how he operates. So no's are, but you know, none of us really like no. I can remember with my own kids having to tell them no about things, and no was never that popular, but I would do it for, you know, what I thought was the right reasons. Well, when we pray, God's like that. He's got lots of yeses in there. Sometimes it's no, because he knows what's best for us. And uh, he's just good that way. So, so you can know that. And, and so that's really important. But we stay persistent in prayer. That's part of it too, the whole knocking. You, you just keep pressing in. And we, we hang on to him. Know that he's got us. All right. End of chapter 11. Something else pops up that you should know about. And that's called the sign of Jonah. Let me read you the verses 29 through 32. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. I just noticed I'm off-centered on the... So am I... It's because of the carpet. So if you're watching, we're redoing the room, and I got half the room undone here, and you can't tell that, but my pulpit was not where... And I just noticed. But now I feel better. Okay, good. And I hope you do too. But this side of the room, it's really weird preaching to an empty side of the room. No, it's okay. It's just different. And now they don't have any idea what I'm talking about, but all of the chairs on that side are gone. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to fall over. <laughs> we, had, we had a couple come back that's moved away. Randy and Mickey were back this weekend, uh, and, and a lot of you might know them. And it was funny because... The, they were here 10 years, and they sat in the same spot over there for 10 years. Somebody else was there. And so they had to sit over there. And Randy actually asked me, are you going to get messed up by this? <laughs> I said, no, I got it. I'm okay. All right. None of that means anything with Luke. Here we go. Uh, 29. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also... Will the Son of Man be to this generation? The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. So that phrase in there, the sign of Jonah, was used by Jesus... As a, uh, as a type, a, a typological metaphor for what was going to happen, his future uh, the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. And, and so um, Jesus used that expression when he was asked by the Pharisees for miraculous proof that he was indeed the Messiah. And, and see, the Pharisees had already seen tremendous miracles uh, in this process. They, the blind had seen, the lame had walked, they'd seen it, they'd witnessed it, and yet they they, as I told you before, they didn't like the package. So they were constantly wanting more and more signs. And Jesus said, no more signs for you. Your hearts are so hardened. Except this one, 
you're going to see what happens. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be crucified. I will be buried. I'll rise again on the third day. And, and he related it to the, 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 uh, the sign of Jonah. Because uh, here's the story. So Jonah, remember, was swallowed by a whale. And he was in the whale for three days. And then he was puked up on the beach. Probably not supposed to use the word puked. Vomited up on the beach. Spewn on the beach. <laughs> anyway, and uh, because he wouldn't go to the Ninevites, Jonah refused. He told God, I don't like them. I want you to wipe them out. And God had said, no, you need to go. They need a chance to repent. And they were extremely hard. And they were, the Ninevites were evil. I mean, the stuff that they did was historically, horrifically, like can't even, beyond description, evil. And so Jonah said, no, let's take them out, God. That's a good plan. And uh, he said, no, they need an opportunity to repent. And Jonah said, no, remember, and that's when he took off. And then he tossed him into the water. You know the story. And then the whale gets him. And he decides, he does business with God in there. And then the whale tosses him up on the beach. And he goes and repeats to the Ninevites. And the hard-hearted Ninevites repent and change. Even because Jonah wasn't looking for, didn't like that. And actually, he didn't like it even afterwards, but that was the deal. Well, what Jesus is saying is, listen, here's the deal. You're getting the Son of God. Messiah has come. You're so hard-hearted. You're refusing to repent. You're going to get that sign because it's going to be the same. I'm going to be basically taken up by the whale, and then I'm going to defeat death and rise again. That's going to be your proof, and if you don't repent at that, you're not going to repent. That's why the, the gospel is that's the gospel message, right? Our sin has separated us from God. But God has made a way for us in Christ because Christ came, took our sin upon him at the cross, died, was buried, and rose again. And that's the proof that we need. That's, the, 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 that's it. That's what we have to get a hold of in the process. Now, there's some people that get struggle here a little bit because the, the three days and three nights term is used there. And the, we know with the resurrection the crucifixion and the resurrection, it was three days, but it wasn't a full three days and three nights. But it's a, it's a type. It doesn't need to be because the, the way that the Jewish people counted a part of a day counted as a full day. So you're not going to get a 72-hour period in the process, but you're going to get part of Friday, all day Saturday, part of Sunday. And that's the three days it happened. It, crucified Friday, dies, buried, all day Saturday, Sunday morning, he's risen. All right? So... That's good. That works in the whole process, and uh, that works very well as a matter of fact. Okay, Luke chapter 13, verse 10. And uh, here we have Jesus healing on the Sabbath, which they were not fond of. Let me read you this. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her. When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. So again, here's the Pharisees. Now, so there's a miracle that takes place in front of them. 
this is the, the thing about the Pharisees is that they had gotten to a point where they recognized that this, this had to be God. They hated the package so much that they were going to shut it down regardless, God or not. And here you have another instant. Now they start picking on, well, if he was really God, why would he be doing things on the Sabbath? Can you think of a better day to, to make yourself known? But they, that's, see, they were so rule-bound they couldn't get there in the process. So he was always in trouble for healing on the Sabbath. But we said earlier, I think last week when I got he was Lord of the Sabbath. It was about him anyway. Luke 14, 15 through 24, great banquet parable. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and replied to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry, ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So here's another parable. Remember, Jesus has come back to the people of Israel, first and foremost, and uh, giving them an opportunity to reconcile their relationship with God. But they are rejecting him um, every, at every turn. And this is a picture of this invitation to the banquet. Now, the banquet invitation, here's, here's the deal. Um, so when, when a banquet was going to be held, in advance of the banquet being held, the, the host would send out invitations and would let people know, hey, on a certain day and time, there's going to be a banquet. You're invited. Are you going to come? And they would, they would already agree to this banquet. And then he said, okay, I'm going to let you know when the specific date is after I go back and get it all organized. Because imagine it's how difficult it would be to pull off a banquet back then. You didn't have deliveries happening. You didn't have all those things. There was going to be a lot of prep time. So in advance, this would be made. So these people that are now saying they're not going to come had already said at some point they would come. And then they're too busy to come because they got better things to do. One's going to, you know, one needs to stay and, uh, uh, you know, they're making excuses. And that's what they were. They excuse, I just bought a field. I got to go and see it. Hey, I've just spent some money. I got to go over here and see it. Another guy said, no, I got some ox. I got to do some work. Another one said, I just got married. I can't come. But see, they would have all known ahead of time that this banquet had been arranged for them. So they're now just making excuses, refusing to go. And in effect, what they're doing is refusing the host. To, in this story, it's, it's God inviting them to come. And they're saying, we're too busy for you. That's the, the big part of what you need to see in this process. And so because the people of Israel reject him, the, the message then shifts over into the Gentiles. And we see that happen throughout the, the church. And it's, it's available to us now. It would have been through them uh, initially and was, but now it's, it's come in a different way because they, it by and large, rejected the Messiah. That Jesus is who he was. Historically, they had done that over and over and over again, but they do it there in that banquet. Okay. Oh, Luke 15, great chapter. Perhaps one of the best-known chapters of Luke, one of my favorites. It's the parable of lost things. Um, the, uh, the lost sheep and the lost coin is the first 10 verses. Uh, verses 1 through 10, remember the setup. It's the... Uh, 
in this, in this situation, they're all, they're, there's a bunch of people around Jesus. And he's got close to him the tax collectors and sinners. So they're all by him. Remember, the tax collectors were the worst of the worst of that group because the, the, people, the Jewish people hated them because they considered them to work for the Romans, and they just hated them. And then all the other sinners were kind of grouped in there. But they loved Jesus, and Jesus always had them around. But the Pharisees, the established religious community, they were always drawn to Jesus too. This whole process, they're all in this group. So uh, everybody's around to hear him. It says, verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They couldn't take that at all. And so what they wanted was to be at the table, but they didn't want anybody else there. But they, they didn't want to follow Jesus. It's kind of a mix, a big, big mess. Jesus tells him this parable. Suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So uh, many of you know that we sing a song and sometimes wonder what that song is. Um, Reckless love. And he says, he, he leaves in 99. I, I sang that really well. Well, it's referencing, <laughs> I can't remember the words right now. I'd sing more of it. So, um, yeah, he leaves a 99. That's what's going on. It's this parable. The, he leaves a 99 and goes in search of the lost one. That's Jesus was. Then they would go and find the lost sheep, and, and he would bring it back. The shepherd then would keep that lost sheep very close to him for a period of time, and, and uh, what would happen is he'd make sure it didn't leave again, and in this process... Uh, he, and they would often carry these sheep that had been, once they'd lost like that, the shepherd would actually pick them up and carry them around for a while, like draped over like a stole. And uh, what would happen is the sheep would become very connected to the shepherd. It's like he heard the shepherd's heartbeat, and he would never wander off again. It's a neat picture of restoration that happens uh, in the process, but the lost were and still are a big part of what's going on with that. And, and there was a big deal when one is found. There's a, like every, every time somebody gets saved, we know it's a big deal in heaven. And there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Verse 8, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Some, something lost is found. It's a big deal in the kingdom of heaven. And that's us. We were lost, and then as we come to know Jesus, we're found. Well, then it launches into one of my favorite stories, and we just did this at church. Uh, it seems like I just did it a little while ago. Luke chapter 15, and it's the parable of the lost son, which is how it's normally known. I think it's not a great word for it. It's, it's really the, uh, it, it's the, the story of the loving father, or maybe it even better, the, the story of the two brothers uh, would be better, but it's known this way as the lost son, and I'm just going to skim it. So what happens is, if you can read it, you should read it later, the younger son goes, uh, he gets tired of waiting for his inheritance, which was a huge deal. In that culture, what he does is very dishonoring. He goes to his father, who should he should have honored, and he says, in effect, I can't wait for you to die any longer. I want my share of the inheritance. I want to go and do stuff. And the father, 
just graciously says fine and gives him his share of the inheritance. And the younger son goes off and he squanders it in riotous living. Uh, and at some point, uh, he runs out of money, he runs out of friends, there's a famine in that land. The only job he can find is feeding pigs, which remember is a really bad job for a young Jewish male. Uh, they would have nothing to do with pigs. That's the only job he can find. The pig food looks good. He can't even have that. He, he says, you know what? Me, the servants in my father's house have it better than I have it here. I'm going to go back and I'm going to beg my father to take me back, not as a son, but as a servant. And he gets it all figured out in his mind and he heads back to his father's house. And then the father sees him a long way off. The father goes running to him and welcomes him back as a son and won't even let him do his speech. Just says, ah, love you, glad you're back. It's what we've been waiting for. When he gives, puts a ring on his finger, he's, he's making him a son again. The, the, the shoes, the sandals for his feet make him not a servant. He's back in as a son, and they go to have a party. The older brother, who is uh, sort of a representative of the Pharisees, the established religious community, he hates what's happened. He doesn't want his young. He's stayed there and worked and worked and worked. And the, the, but the father goes after the older brother. Why aren't you in here with the party? And he says, all, all I've done is work for you. And the father says, it's never been about that. All, all I have is yours. I just want to be in relationship with you. That's the heart of that parable is that Jesus, he, God wants to be in relationship with us. And it's not about how messed up we are or have been as long as we're coming back and working towards him, moving towards him, or how rule-following we think we are. It's, none of, it's always about our relationship with him and are we pressing into him and is it about him and not about us in the process. So that's all of Luke 15. I'd encourage you to spend some time to read that because I just did that really fast. But I'm watching the clock. And I wanted to get one more chunk in today which is in Luke 19. Look at the notes I had for what I just did in two minutes. Wow, that's impressive. What's the story? Luke 19. Ah, the parable of the ten minas. So you should look at this too. Uh, Luke 19, 11 through 27. And well, let me read you some of it. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. That passage is important because of our understanding of the kingdom of God. So when, when we talk about the kingdom, if you've been with me for a while, we've done this before. But oftentimes when, when someone will say the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it, we, we, we want to start thinking of a place. We think he's talking about a place, but he's not. Um, the kingdom in the Bible is, is not a specifically a place. It's the rule and reign. It's God's authority. When we talk about the kingdom of God, it's always about God's rule and reign. Every verse that you see the kingdom, you can apply it. Like seek first his kingdom. Is, is not, uh, you're not seeking a place. You're seeking the rule and reign of God in your life. Uh, and throughout the scripture, that's what it means. And this verse tells us, see, that this person of noble birth he, he went to have himself appointed king and then to return. He, he didn't need a, a land. He already had the land. He needed the rule. He needed the authority to be king. And, and so what Jesus has is that authority because God gave it to him in the process. And so then he goes on with this parable and he's giving them uh, talents, um, meanness to work. And, uh, and so he, he gives each one a, a certain amount of money, and then he finds out what they've done with it, and some have done well with it, and they get more, and some haven't. They've basically buried what God has given them and not used it for his glory, and that's not okay. So the, the point of that is that all of us have been given um, 
things and talents and all sorts. And we're supposed to give them to the Lord for the sake of the kingdom. We're supposed to use them not solely for ourselves, but for Him. And then He blesses us in the process. So uh, that's another very important parable that you should be looking at. And that's enough for tonight. It's almost time. So that's good. We'll pick it up there. Next week, if you're watching my video, thanks for watching. Come and uh, join us when you can. We'll see you soon. God bless you.